This is Chapter 76 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, a debut thriller that explores complicated sibling dynamics. Then we learn more about the new business model, Catching Fun. You owe me. Those three little words can carry a lot of weight, especially when they're uttered by a family member you'd do anything for. That's the jumping off point for Lori Petru's debut thriller, Sister of Mine. She spoke to our Marla Diamond about why she chose to write about the craziness that is sisterhood. Is the book autobiographical in any way? <laughs> no. Actually, people always ask me if I have a sister, and I don't have a sister, but I am a sister, so that's a bit of a riddle. But um, I have a brother whom I'm very close with, and we don't have a, you know, super thriller-like relationship. So no, it's not autobiographical. So uh, how did you think up this uh, kind of sibling rivalry book between two sisters? I love books about family and I love books that take place over, you know, decades. And I wanted to work in that kind of uh, format. Uh, and I was really interested in that idea of debt and duty and, uh you know, would you do anything for someone? And I really wanted to do that with sisters. So I knew that from the outset and the book just sort of started to form from there. The idea that, you know, if you called someone in the middle of the night and it was your sister, would you do anything for her? And would she do anything for you? And what would that do to your relationship, you know, over the course of several years? Okay, right. Uh, The book explores maybe a decade in their lives. The two sisters? Yeah, probably more, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, they, you know, it's, it starts out with, you know, there's a murder on the first page. So unlike many thrillers, the book is all about the aftermath of the act rather than the, the crime itself. And, uh, yeah, and so what takes place over several years. But, you know, flashes back to when they were children as, way, as well. So you get a, a good glimpse of them as kids and as adult women. So tell us about that setup uh, on the first pages of the book for this part mystery, part thriller. Well, the the book opens with a fire, so it's got a you know a kind of a, a really bold beginning, and it starts with the fire and uh, the abusive husband of one of the women, uh, Penny's husband Buddy, is uh, you know they, there's been a fire set, and she's running away from the fire, and then we sort of flash forward to a year after the fire, and this is a secret between the, the girls. Um, it looked like it was an accident to the outside world, but uh, you know we come to know that it that it wasn't. And you mentioned uh, abusive husband. You do delve into the issue of domestic violence in the book. Penny is the protagonist. Tell us about her relationship with her husband, Mac. Uh, her husband is Buddy. Um, and oh, I'm sorry about that. Mac is oh, the friend, okay. right? Okay. Yes. <laughs> Go ahead. Yes. Uh, Mac is his friend. So uh, the relationship is, uh, yes, yeah, physically abusive, uh, verbally abusive, emotionally abusive relationship. Um and sort of came on the heels of their mother's death. So she met Buddy after their mother died and she was in a vulnerable position. Uh, the women live in a small, tight community, small town. And uh, Buddy was sort of there at this time when she felt like no one else was. And she clung to him. And I think, um, you know, the relationship deteriorated and she became the victim of uh, his violence subsequently. And, um, you know, the only person she could really turn to was her sister, Hattie, who in ways, good ways and bad ways has always been there with her. And there's a character that comes to town. It's very, where did you um, envision this town to be? I know it's a small town somewhere. Um, You're from Canada. Uh, Is it Canada, United States? What did you envision this to be? 
Midwestern. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's small town everywhere. Um, I live in a small town. I live in a small escarpment town. So I, I pictured a, a, a town similar to mine. And when I was describing, you know, the escarpment and the, the, the forest, um, I'm picturing a town very much like the one that I live in now. And, and it didn't grow up here. Um, I'm originally from the Toronto area and now live in a very small town. And it's been an interesting transition to have moved from, a, you know, a huge metropolis to a very small town and seeing how tight knit a small town community can be. So I really wanted it to take place in that kind of almost um, suffocating environment. Right. I mean, small towns are so interesting and can be such a huge uh, value to people because the communities can be so tight, but they can also be really tough on people as well. Right. So everyone knows one another. And when you have a secret, that is complicated. Absolutely. And people have their ideas about who you are and what you've gone through. And um, and that's what I wanted to play on in this book is that these are young women who everybody knows. Uh, they've got this sort of air of tragedy around them from the time that they were young. And uh, I really wanted to build on that idea that people have an idea of who they are and they have a very different reality inside their house. And the house that they live in is their childhood home. And I wanted to make that house like another character in the book. So that big old brick house that they live in has kind of borne witness to all the events that have taken place over their lives. Right. right. The, their father leaves uh, very early on. The girls mm-hmm. believe their that dies. their mother dies uh, very suddenly. The girls somehow believe that they are responsible for their father leaving, which is not an unusual thing for a child to think. Um, so, yes, as you said, there's a, 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 a tragedy already. And then um, as they uh, grow into adulthood, um, there's this conflict uh, between them that gets complicated by a new visitor to town. So tell us about that. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, there's a line in the book that talks about how Leo Tolstoy said that there are only two kinds of stories. Um, You know, man goes on a quest and stranger comes to town. And this is, you know, Jameson Lung comes to town and he's a a new young teacher who comes to town and is sort of everyone knows that there's somebody new in town. And the the women, Patty and Henny, who are only ever uh, the two of them and maybe one other person, you know, there's mention of sometimes there are three. So, uh, you know, the two women and their mother when they're young after their father leaves or the two of them and then Buddy, the the husband, and then the two of them and this character, Jameson. So they open up their lives for one more person. And it's risky because they are so close to him. And Penny fears that this, the secret of their lives will start to unravel. Um, because when you're so close to someone, what you want to do is tell them everything. And uh, Hattie falls in love with Jameson and, um, and Penny feels like this is putting them at even greater risk of, of un- unveiling what has gone on. And then there's more complications when uh, Hattie and Jameson try to start a family. But I guess that we'll let the reader uh, <laughs> delve into yes. that. But in, in terms of and we should mention that Buddy is killed in this fire. Yes. Um, yeah, he dies right at the beginning. Not a spoiler. Right. OK. Um, and there is a detective who is also well known to these women. Um, it's like, mm-hmm. as you said, small town. He comes in and out of the picture, and that adds this sort of undercurrent of suspense that mm-hmm. you know one of these sisters could be in trouble, you know, for either committing the crime or keeping the secret. And there's mm-hmm. always that um, I get feeling or fear that these sisters will be found out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that character, you know, they know him from high school, um, and now he's grown up, and he. 
at one time uh, was smitten with Hattie. And so, you know, maybe it's clouded his judgment in terms of how effective he is as a detective. And yeah, sort of is lurking in the shadows of this story throughout the, the course of the narrative. Um, and so when you uh, put together a mystery or a thriller, I'm thinking along the lines of Gone Girl or Girl on the Train, those were two very popular bestsellers. Um, how do you keep the reader um, interested? How do you make it a page turner? I think uh, my, my agent made a great comment once when we were talking about this sort of thing. And she said, the book has to live without the, the twist. So there's a big twist in my book, but the book has to be compelling enough throughout before or even without the twist. So you want to make the characters really compelling. You want to make the plot moving at a, a good pace. You want to have some, some you know, red herrings and some ideas that will keep the reader guessing. Um, and then, yeah, if you have some payoff at the end or a twist, like you know, those books that you mentioned certainly do, um, that's great. And that's like a wonderful payoff. But the books exist without that. They're still compelling. They're still um, plot-driven and character-driven and, uh, and compelling reads. And certainly entertaining. I, yeah. I know that you're an associate professor of uh, media, correct? Yeah. Um, yes. And I so, work at, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I work at uh, Ryerson University in the RTA School of Media. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so much of what's out there. Uh, today in fiction has to also be highly entertaining. I mean, I, I, I'm almost always read a book thinking, could this be a movie? Did, did, yeah. did you think that too? I always wonder if authors sort of write these books so that they can easily be translated to the big screen. I don't know how other authors feel. I mean, I have friends who are authors who are also screenwriters, and so they probably have a different point of view than I. Um, you know, I, but I wonder if there are other authors who are like, well, this is my baby. I don't want it to be, you know, uh, you know, turned into a film or, you know, I was sort of I didn't think about what I, while I was writing. But certainly I have very strong ideas visually of what the characters look like, but they're not actors that I, that I you know, they're not famous actors or anything. But, right. yeah, I, I, I feel like if the, if the story is compelling enough and interesting enough, um, if it's a great story, then, yeah, that's our natural impulse as readers is to imagine this sort of thing and populate it with actors in our minds. Have you had any Hollywood offers? Not as yet. <laughs> it's a wonderful book, um, and it really is a page turner. And And I understand you won a, a literary award uh, for writing yeah. about uh, female characters. That, that was even before the book was published. Yes, there was. So there was a really interesting study a number of years ago. Uh, I believe the woman's name is Nicola Griffin. And the study was about how, you know, uh, literary awards are often given to books about men. So even if the authors are women, the stories themselves are not about women. And so this Half the World Global Literati Award uh, was created to award works of fiction that featured the inner lives of women, whether they were, you know, short stories or plays or poetry or novels. Um, And it was for an unpublished work. And a lot of people sort of sent it my way, like, oh, you know, this is a big prize. It was $50,000 American. And uh, and so I I sent the book off and uh, and won. You know, it was a a wonderful, life-changing event for me. So that was huge. And uh, definitely, I think things started happening happening rapidly after that. Of course, it's affirmation that it will certainly fly off the shelves. It's it's out in paperback. Yep. I know I, I saw it, it in my local Barnes and Noble, and it has. That's right. I got a picture of it. Someone was in Barnes Good. and Noble uh, in Manhattan the other day and took a little picture of it in the wild for me. <laughs> right, and and uh, it's always great when um, it ends up on their featured uh, book area, and this this was. It's a great book. 
Very exciting. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Lori Petro, the author of the new novel, Sister of Mine. Thank you. Gone are the days when subscriptions were just for newspapers and magazines. And according to CEO Teen Zuo and his new book, the subscription model is the future of anyone's business. If you're sitting there wondering what exactly is she talking about, here's CEO Radio's Ray Hoffman to explain. You can subscribe to just about anything today. Dollar Shave Club, Netflix, Stitch Fix, Amazon Prime, Cars, Power Tools, and Fender Guitars. This podcast was recorded on a subscription software product. Adobe Systems gets $20 from me every month for the editing platform known as Adobe Audition. And Teen Zuo will tell you this is only starting. He's founder and CEO of Zuora, the largest company in the subscription management industry, $3 billion market cap last I looked. And he's the author of a very forward-facing new book entitled Subscribed. Here's part of my CEO radio conversation with Teen Zuo. I've seen several interviews with you. You invariably make the point that we don't buy things the way we used to because so many of us are watching video on demand instead of collecting DVDs and using Uber instead of buying a car. So in your role as the head of the leading subscription software services firm, what does the old retailing phrase, all sales final, mean to you? Really, that, that phrase, all sales model, really shows you how different this business model is. And so at Salesforce, in the early days, we started acquiring customers. And we had that mindset, right? We sold the product. Hey, it's yours. You deal with it. And then we realized that, no, 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 we're, we're a service provider. And our customers, what we needed our, our customers to do is to come back every single day and continue to use the product. And so we had to take care of them. We had to really care about what it is that they did. And so the sale, turns out, is, it's not a final. It's just a first step and hopefully what's a long, long relationship. And some of these customers have been using Salesforce for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And so the business model has completely flipped on its head, right? It, it, when you sign up a customer, that's actually the start of a relationship. And more and more energy of companies are focused now on retaining the customers, keeping them using the service, adapting the service, incre- providing increasing value, and then tying the business model to the value that you provide your existing customers. Yeah, I saw that phrase, all sales final, as you wrote in the book, and that just seemed like such a, such a trigger point for the flipping of the entire model. That's right. And so in, in the books, uh, the books described, there's a picture that really shows that. It shows the old model, which starts with the product, and you tr- try to put the product into as many channels as you can, as many stores, as many salespeople, as many resellers. And you know there's a customer on the other side that's purchasing the product, but you oftentimes don't know who they are, right? Nike doesn't really know who's buying their sneakers, right? General Motors doesn't really have a relationship with the folks that are buying the cars. It's the dealers that have the relationship. And the modern company doesn't work like that, right? Amazon knows who you are because you have an Amazon ID. Facebook knows who you are because you have a Facebook ID. Google knows who you are because you have a Google ID. And that ID establishes a relationship that you have with that service provider. And they can go into all sorts of areas. They can go into groceries. They can go into entertainment. They can go into work, right? And that's how the modern company operates. If you can give me a visual description, not good for radio, not good for a podcast, but if you can take me to those two side-by-side charts. Yeah. Well, we talked to a lot of people that bought the book, the book called Subscribed. And when they talk about how they use the book inside of the company, they always go back to that diagram. So the left side is really the old economy. And it looks like, it looks like a hierarchy. It starts with the product. The product is put into multiple channels. You see arrows going from that single product into multiple channels. And it goes to, to customers, many customers, that are often anonymous. 
These are faceless, nameless customers. You don't know who they are. You just know that somebody's buying your product. Looks kind of like a lecture hall from above, doesn't it? Looks like a lecture hall. Looks like, a, like, like an organization chart, if you will, a tree. The right side looks like a circle. And the circle starts with the customer in the middle. And this is somebody you know. You know their ID. You have their email. Perhaps you have their credit card on file. You know the number of purchases they've made over the history of when they became a customer. And then there's a circle around, which is the places they're spending. Yes, they're talking to your, their, your, your salespeople. Yes, they're spending time on their phone, on their computer, perhaps in your store, talking to your call centers. But wherever they are, you want to spend time with their innovations, right? And so, so Fender, Fender is a great example. Fender is a classic guitar manufacturer. And you can say, well, what is a guitar manufacturer? How do they transform? Well, they realize that there's only so many guitars they can sell down at Guitar Center, right? The Guitar Center down on 34th Street, as an example. But they said, you know, what if we flipped the model? What if we started with the customer? What we realize is we're selling a lot of guitars to first-time buyers, but 90% of them quit. They quit playing after three months. It's just too hard. But if they're still playing at month 12, they play for life, and they, play a lot, they, they purchase a lot more guitars, a lot more picks, a lot more amps. So this is what we really need to do. And so we're going to launch a whole set of digital services, tuning applications, learning applications. So when you buy your guitar now, you get a whole set of other applications that teach you how to play like you 2 how to play like Bob Marley, how to play like your favorite rock star. And they're doing such a great job of that that more and more people are sticking with the service and actually realizing that it's not about selling guitars. It's about turning people into rabid, fantastic guitar players. Now, did someone in Zuwara, you or someone else, make that suggestion to Fender? Or did someone at Fender come to you and say, we have an idea that we might want to do some sort of subscription club? Well, we're talking to so many companies around the world. And oftentimes, they're like, this is our first exposure. How, how do we do this? We see this as the future, right? You, know, you see this in your personal lives. You're using Uber. You're using Lyft. More and more of your credit card is made up of these services that you're tapping into. You're realizing every day that passes, you don't have to buy that many products anymore. But how do, we, how do we transform our own companies? This is why we wrote the book. We took really the stories and the companies that, uh, of, of, of all the conversations we've had over the last 10 years and try to capture it in a set of books that guide you. So the first half of the book is really about how the subscription-based business model is transforming specific industries, the media industry, the transportation industry, the manufacturing industry, the software industry, on and on and on. And the second half of the book is to talk about let's go through every single department innovation department, how do you create your products, the marketing department, the sales department, the financial department, the IT department, and talk about all the transformations that you have to have across these things. And not only that, how you, do you get these companies to actually work together? Because the old model of scale, assembly lines, mass manufacturing, every color as long as it's black, we've heard all this before, was really about scale and it created these siloed, you know, these functional stovepipes organizations. That all has to come down. And so the books described as really a template to really inspire companies of how to transform into the new economy and, and a recipe of how to execute that transformation inside your companies. And I love the story about also the, uh, the manufacturer Husqvarna yeah. and how, how they have a subscription plan. I wouldn't think that they would well, have anything that you could subscribe to, but I'm thinking, of uh, course, again, the product, the product rather than the need. That's right. I mean, Husqvarna, is, uh, not, not too many people in the U.S. know it, but they're the leading provider of power tools. Uh, retailer power tools in, in, in the Nordic countries, uh, Sweden as an example. And I think they are sold at Home Depot. They're sold at Home Depot, and so you see a lot of these devices. You know, kind of, it's like a DeWalt or a Black & Decker. But what they realize is, and, and, and you know this, right? It, it's not really about the power drill. It's about some task that you need to do at home. And why should we all have every one of these things? And so they're setting up smart sheds in neighborhoods with 
all the different power tools. You can actually walk up to a shed. You can register, swipe a credit card, take a power tool, use it for a few hours, put it back, and you're only charged for the amount of time that you're using it. And this just makes that much more sense. So you're taking a traditional product-centric company that's just taking a completely different view, using digital technologies to transform the relationship they have with their existing customers. Do you find in dealing with companies such as that, that older managers are resistant to the idea once they hear it, or do they fall right into it as well? Well, I think there's definitely a transformation. Again, this is why we wrote the book, to inspire people with stories and examples that they can take back to to their organizations. A lot of people do ask us, though, like this, this transformation from traditional product-based business models to subscription-based business, business models, is this favor a startup? Does this favor the disruptor, the next Salesforce, the next Uber, the next Lyft? But what we're seeing is if the transformation is about taking your customers and then re-envisioning them as a subscriber, somebody you have a, an ongoing relationship that's using your service, then the existing companies, right, the traditional successful Fortune 500 class companies, they're the ones that have the most customer. So if they can just transform and actually know who their customers are, they can actually be really, really successful in this transformation. And, and so we're seeing Nike set up Nike IDs with their health devices. We're seeing L'Oreal set up L'Oreal IDs. We're seeing Coke set up Coke vending machines where you can walk up with your phone and your Coke ID and ask for a customized version of the soft drink that you want. And so you're seeing traditional companies really going fast and furious into this new world. Yeah, in the in the book you mentioned how in the early days of your company, Zuora, you played a game. Is there anything that you can't subscribe to? This is one of our favorite games at, at Zora. We're talking about subscription economy companies, and we're wondering, is there an industry, is there a company that's last to go into subscriptions? And we would talk about, you know, things like cement. We would talk things about industrial goods, right? How do you, how do you really rent a tractor? Does that, does that make any sense? And what we found is, is, is Caterpillar today is saying, gosh, with digital technologies, we have 2 million of these tractors, these physical assets in the field. Half of them are already collecting data and sending it to the Internet. So they're smart tractors, smart devices, if you will. And, and what we're realizing is, you know, it's not about the tractor. People are just trying to move some dirt. If they're trying to move some dirt, why can't we send out the aerial drones? Why can't we do a mapping of what the landscape looks like? Why can't we download that into a CAD tool, right, actually model it on a computer, and then send the instructions down to these automated precision excavation tractors, if you will, and actually sculpt it for them. And, and so the customer gets what they want without having to deal with the hassles of actually figuring out what to do with the physical devices. And if you want to hear more, check out CEO Radio at radio.com. And that's this week's show. Short but sweet. Remember to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. And if there's an author you want to hear from, let us know by emailing us at books at WCBS880.com. That's books at WCBS880.com. Next time, buckle up as we go on the wild ride that is Washington politics.